1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read this morning verses 1 through 5 as we continue on in our series uh, from the book of Corinthians. Here is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. The apostle says, And when I come to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. God has rich blessing in the reading of His Word. Let's call upon Him for help to understand. Father, would You now assist us by Your grace to incline our hearts to receive Your statutes with uh, obedience, that we would hear what Your Word has to say, and that by the operation of Your Holy Spirit that You would uh, allow us to use that word to correct our thoughts and our attitudes and desires which are out of accordance with your word and that at the same time uh, your word would come alongside us and fortify our minds with truth and reinforce what we have grasped by your grace and that as we hear the preaching of the gospel as Christ speaks to us through his word may it build us up and edify us in the truth uh, with grace and love in our hearts this we ask in Jesus name Amen you may be seated. I'm going to begin this morning by giving you all an optional homework assignment to fulfill perhaps later today or sometime this next week. Hopefully some of you are curious enough to go see this because it may reinforce the image I'm trying to plant in your mind ahead of time to illustrate the truth. And the assignment is to go look up a picture of a 19th century painting called All is Vanity. All is Vanity by Charles Gilbert. And if you look at this picture, perhaps some of you have seen it before. Uh, If you look closely, you'll see that there are two images there. If you look at it from one perspective, it will appear that there is a beautiful young lady staring into a mirror, observing her reflection. But if you look at it from another angle, what it will look like is a grinning human skull. Two radically different Uh, really, reflections in the mirror. Of course, it's an optical illusion. It's it's a means by which this painter has shaped our perspective and perception of reality. But that's not the only way to work illusion. In the ancient world, there were a group of people called sophists who sought to shape people's perceptions of reality with words. They would use elaborate arguments. They would use sophisticated reasoning. They would use dramatic techniques. Uh, They would use poetry. They would sew together a number of illustrations. They, They would manipulate their audiences in several different ways in order that they, the audience, would follow the speaker's view of reality. It is that kind of a mentality here that the Apostle Paul takes on as he speaks to these Corinthians attempting to correct problems in the church. He attacks that view of shaping reality or people's perceptions of reality with illusions, with words. And I'll get into the reason why the Apostle does that in a moment. And to attack that view of reality and the effects that it's having on the people of God in Corinth, the Apostle Paul, again, goes back to the contrast between the preaching of the word of wisdom, which we saw in verse 17, and the preaching of the word of the cross. Let's take a moment to connect our passage to the flow of thought here. Uh, The Apostle is connecting back to this argument that he's been having. You see, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, the apostles said that there were quarrels. And some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apostle, of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ, and so forth. There was division in the church. As I've said numerous times, the people of God are lining up behind their favorite uh, apostolic superheroes. And they are following them, and not only are they following particular people, but on the other hand, that is leading to division and dissension in the church. So as they line up behind the particular figure, they are at the same time stepping on their neighbors. It's causing 
uh, a lack of unity and fellowship in the congregation. So the Apostle Paul immediately replies to that by saying, I didn't baptize any of you, I came to preach. That's verses 13 to 16. And then after accenting that he came to preach, the Apostle gets into the issue of what he was preaching. And he does that to uh, attack the philosophy which is behind uh, these divisions somewhat. And he says, I didn't preach wisdom of word, I preached the word of the cross. And those have two different effects on the congregation. One is to unify the people of God around the truth. And the other, the word of wisdom theology and preaching, has the effect of dividing the people of God. He says, but at the same time, that kind of preaching looks weak. It looks despised by human standards. It's... It's really not flashy. It doesn't really agree with the opinions of the elite who are in the academy. And Paul acknowledges that. In fact, he even goes on to say that to the Jews it's a stumbling block and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. He readily acknowledges and concedes that the wisdom of the word of the cross is very different than the other kind of preaching in terms of its substance and its effects. And then in verses 26 through 31, he continues on attacking the divisions in Corinth. And this time, he goes underneath the surface of the problems, which is an inordinate desire to be somebody or something. And and, and he points out to them in verse 26 that not many of them were anything. They weren't wise. They weren't mighty. They weren't noble. And he goes on to make it even worse by saying that... Uh, they were, many of them, the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the base things of the world, the despised things of the world, the things that were not. He says, look at your calling, look at your life, look at your experiences. None of you were really anything. You see, and it was that lack of being something and now being in the church and being in Christ that many of them were using uh, as sort of a wedge issue to uh, rise up the social and influence ladder. And he says, the gospel is not for that. Now, we come to chapter 2. Paul is continuing on with that argument, at least in verses 1 through 5. He's continuing on uh, with taking on the divisions in Corinth. And he comes back to and revisits this issue of the word of wisdom preaching. And he contrasts that now with the preaching of the cross. And particularly, what he focuses on is the method Particularly what he is focusing on here now is the method. We already know what the message is. The message of the word of wisdom preaching is to follow and to be influenced and to be shaped by the ideals of fallen human thinking, which is power and wisdom. That's what the ancient Greek world longed for, was power and wisdom. Power was normally gained in the ancient world through wisdom. Power was normally gained, at least in the Greco-Roman aspect of the world. It was normally gained through wisdom. The ability to speak well. The ability to shape people's opinions by words. The ideal of the powerful person in the ancient world was somebody who was, uh, who was an intellectual. Somebody who had uh, cultivated the disciplines of thinking and communicate clearly through speech. And he could shape another person's perception of reality with words. That was the person who was considered powerful. And so whatever conformed to that fit with the message of the wisdom of the word. Now the Apostle Paul says it's not just the message that he's opposed to. It's also the methods that are used to do that. And you see here that he takes that on in verse 1 and then also in verse 4. He says, when we came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. And then in verse 4 he says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. You see, the apostle here, probably, at least in part, because he is fresh off a stint of preaching in Athens... Where you remember from Acts chapter 17, he had extensive interaction with the the great leading lights and thinkers of the day. As he sat in the marketplace, which is where the philosophers would gather in Athens to debate and to speak. And then he went before their Areopagus, which were uh, the leading uh, intellectual figures of the day who evaluated the intellectual currents and philosophies of the day. He had just been there. He had just been debating among them. He had been telling them the gospel. And you remember 
The end result was that they thought that he was a scavenger. A seed picker, the word literally says. So Paul was aware of that, and maybe that reinforced his methods even more as he comes into Corinth, which was another intellectual center, which was another center uh, where sophistry was uh, thriving in this particular time, which Paul preached. And he says, I intentionally came into town and proclaimed the gospel, not in a way that would have been culturally relevant to you. That's the key. He says, my preaching among you was not like the sophists and the great rhetoricians who had their schools in Corinth. And who were the teachers and the admired ones and the intellectual elite of the day. He says, I consciously and intentionally did not speak to you adopting their methods. And the methods were all about manipulation. Modulating the voice to get people's affections moved, to stir the emotions, to be somewhat melodramatic if need be. This was basically the uh, mode of operation of those speakers. They would find the available means of persuasion in the audience. You see that? The way they spoke was a reflection of the audience. Whatever the audience considered to be means of persuasion, they would find those out, and then they would so construct their messages that the people would walk away thinking that that speaker up front had just echoed how they thought about life. They didn't thought that they believed in any truth. They didn't. The sophists of Paul's day did not believe that there was such a thing as fixed, objective truth at all. Sounds very familiar to what we face today in our world with the onslaught of secular humanism. People really don't believe in anything. You see, if you live in a world that exists by chance, not by a divine maker, if you live in a world that is sustained by chance and not a divine provider, and if you live in a world that someday will go into extinction by chance and not ended by the power and the glory of God, then there's no objective truth anywhere. All you live in is a world that's here by chance, controlled by impersonal chance laws, and there is really no objective truth out there. And if there was, it would be impossible for us to know how to access that truth with our minds. That's what the world says today. That's what it says then. See, and since there was no such thing as objective truth, and since the mind could not comprehend or grasp or lay hold of objective truth, then the job of the speaker is to simply shape the view of reality by suggesting to the mind ways of thinking or seeing the world. Just like in that painting, all is vanity. Is it a beautiful young lady staring at the reflection of her face in the mirror? Or is it death staring at her in the eyes? Very different views of reality. But you see, it suggests that there isn't anything objectively true. And when people don't believe that there is something objectively true, all their job is to figure out what you think is right, or what you know, or what you believe would be persuasive, and then just to mirror that in the way they communicate to you. To get you to buy into their view of reality. We see this happening all the time today. Let's take a very simple example. Infomercials. Infomercials. 30-minute blocks of instruction paid for by a particular advertiser who has a product. They use elaborate means of persuasion to get you to buy something you definitely don't need. Right? You've never seen the product before you heard the infomercial? You knew nothing about it, and you probably won't even investigate after that, but they know that there is a certain segment of the market out there who, if they present the substance of their product in a particular way, will get you to buy something that you didn't need. And they do that by getting attractive people or celebrities to endorse the product. They do vast amounts of market research and polling to figure out what kind of uh, emotional or psychological or linguistic triggers might be necessary to get somebody to buy impulsively. 
And then they give you the presentation and they tell you how much better your life will be if you buy their product. How maybe your life right now is incomplete or uh, you didn't even know it, but you're searching for something that will make your life more simple and efficient. And then they tell you that uh, money's no object, by the way, because uh, you can buy their product in just three easy payments using credit card. And then they tell you that it's urgent because uh, supplies are limited. So if you've been convinced that this product will make your life easier and happier and more efficient, then you better buy right now. You can't wait. Even though you never heard of this thing before and you don't need it, they shape your view of reality. They have taken you from not even knowing about their product to, to 30 minutes later believing your life can't exist without this. And by the way, you'll get a set of steak knives if you order right now too. We'll sweeten the deal. That's pure sophistry. That's using the available means of persuasion in the situation. Appealing to you and figuring out what might motivate you to buy their product. That's exactly what the sophists were doing here. And so Paul says, uh, brothers, I did not come to you preaching that message, first of all, and I did not come to you using those methods. Now remember, the reason why the Apostle Paul brings all this up is because he is saying that the, the behavior that you are manifesting fits perfectly with this view of reality. That there's no objective truth. There's just, I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. I'm of Cephas. You see? No one unified, grand, universal theory of reality or truth. It's just that I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. I like Chevys. I like Buicks. I like Toyotas. You see, there isn't one that's right. There just could be all kinds. And it's what's true and right for you. That's the whole mentality that's behind this message that Paul attacks and those are the effects that it has. It leads people to isolate particular views of reality, to line up behind them, and that's their little slice of truth. So Paul says, I didn't come to you doing that. But you know, on the other hand, I have to pause and just say that there are some people who favor an anti-intellectual view of Christianity who seize upon this passage and say, See there? We shouldn't really be interested in learning after all. You see that? You see, we really shouldn't be all that interested in arguments and logic and thinking and truth because bad things happen to the church when we study truth, when we study arguments, when we study philosophy, when we study rhetoric, when we study persuasion. And so wouldn't it just be better if we believed the Bible just like Jesus did? Added nothing to it. And just had a simple faith. You see, because Paul says he didn't have uh, any of those influences upon him. He didn't speak with persuasive words of wisdom after all. Okay, so I took the bait. I, I have to talk about this a second because it's not true. That's not what he's saying. Paul isn't saying, I am opposed to learning. Paul is not saying, I am opposed to logic. Paul is not saying, I am opposed to persuasion. Paul is not saying, I am opposed to all forms of argumentation. Just listen to some of these references as I reel them off. You don't have to turn there, but just think about it and ask yourself the question, is Paul attacking learning or truth? Is he anti-intellectual? Acts chapter 17, verse 2. According to Paul's custom, he went in to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer. All of those words refer to argument. Reason means to argue. Explaining means to unfold something in the mind. Giving evidence is to lay out objective truth in a rational way. Acts 18, it refers to his own visit here in Corinth. Verse 4, he was reasoning with them in the synagogue. Acts chapter 19, it says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading. Persuading there means to convince and to get people to respond accordingly. Acts chapter 26, at the end of his speech before Agrippa, Agrippa applied, replied to Paul and said, In a short time you persuade me. 
You see, Paul wasn't opposed to using the tools of logic and, and reason and argumentation. But here is the difference. Paul used the Word of God. Paul used the Word of God. He attempted to persuade people using the Scriptures. He attempted to reason from the Scriptures to the truth. And that's a very important difference. You see, the sophists were just using arguments. They were just appealing to emotions. They were looking to the situation to figure out what is the logic in your mind that they can use to persuade you to buy something that you don't need. Paul's not excusing a lack of intellectual curiosity. Paul's not saying that Christians ought to be people who want nothing to do with the books. He's just saying when it comes down to preaching, this is what we do. We reason from the Word, not on our own to the Word. It's a very important distinction there that he makes, and I think it's a corrective to some of us in uh, Protestant, Evangelical, Conservative Christianity who tend at times to overemphasize the value and utility of apologetics. If we can just walk through my nine proofs for the Word of God being true, they'll believe. If I can just lay out enough evidences to show that Jesus really was a man, that He lived here on earth. If I could just come up with four or five rational proofs for the existence of God, I'll get them. Those things may have their place, but the fact of the matter is, what Paul is trying to say here, that it's reasoning and arguing from the Word that changes hearts and minds. So we set that idea aside. Paul's not arguing for us to be anti-intellectuals who don't ever read a book and who know nothing about logic and argumentation. He's not saying that. He's just saying let's be careful to reason from the Word. But he gets into the message now. He gets into the message now. To come back to method, but he comes back to this message which is so uh, central because it's what unifies people and, and um, cultivates an environment where people are united around truth and around Christ and one view of reality, not many. He says the message that does that is this message which he says is the testimony of God in verse 1 and then in verse 2 He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now we're to the message part. This is uh, what the word of the cross is all about. He takes them on a stroll down memory lane. He says, do you remember how it was when I came to you? Do you remember what I said and what I preached when I came to Corinth? He says, I came proclaiming the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We'll unfold that in a minute, but I just want us to see what Paul has done. He appeals to his time there in Corinth. He says, remember, I didn't come to you uh, showing Jesus films or wholesome movies. I didn't come and set up a, a, a Moto X demonstration with motorcycles and skateboards. I didn't come hiring celebrities. I came to you and I did one thing. I walked into the synagogue and I opened up the scriptures and I proclaimed Christ to you. That was it. He preached Christ. He preached a person. That's what he says. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. First of all, he proclaimed a person. Jesus. You see, preaching is not just preaching doctrine in a narrowly limited sense as if these ideas, and we just proclaim ideas, we preach a person. And in Him the ideas make sense. We're not preaching abstract philosophy and abstract truths, like what is the nature of beauty? What is the nature of time? What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of truth? The Christian message is about a person. 
And to call him Jesus Christ is Paul's way of referencing the fact that this was a man. You see, at the heart of the Christian message is not simply an ideal, it's a person. The heart of the heart of the gospel message is that God, the Son of God, became man and He lived among us. And it's not just like the mythological heroes from uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans who just somehow just showed up on the scene one day with a sword in their hand and, and defeated their enemies for them. Jesus just didn't sort of stroll out of the desert and announce that He was here and He's the Messiah and people should believe on Him. But you know very well the story that Jesus Christ entered into the condition of being a human being in the exact same way every single human being has ever entered this world except for Adam and Eve. He came through a process of birth. And he lived in this world like any other child did. He had brothers and he had sisters and he skipped rocks with his friends and he played in the streets. And when he grew up he got a job and he put on a belt and he worked in a construction site. He lived like a real person. He's a real human being. And Paul says, that's what I preach to you. Not abstract ideas or principles or concepts. I preached a person. Jesus Christ. Jesus as Messiah. I get so tired of hearing liberals deal with this passage. And other parts of the Bible saying, well, Paul never really preaches the facts of Jesus' life. They'll say, if you read Paul, it doesn't really sound like you're reading the Gospels. And my response is, duh. It's obvious. It's not because that's not his purpose. He preaches the man and he shows how reality makes sense in view of the man. He preaches how the doctrines fit in Christ. His assignment was not to give you a biography of Jesus' life. But it's very clear here from his own testimony that he knew something of Christ because I preached him, he says. And I preached him crucified. The central historical idea outside of his incarnation. His crucifixion and his resurrection. I preached the cross, he said. What is the cross? What is the cross but the message that God loves His people. You see, that's one thing that you cannot miss as you study out the message of the cross in the New Testament. It first of all begins with God. That God in heaven above, in eternity past, decreed to send His Son to die for the world. That's what John says. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. You see, the whole entire motivation of the cross begins with God's self-determination and decree in eternity past to send His Son. The cross is not something that sort of just happened to Jesus and then after the fact, God said, you know what, I think I'll use that to change my mind about sinners if they accept it as true. The truth of the cross is that it is founded upon and based in the Father's intention to save a people for Himself. And He did that for one mysterious reason. Because He loved us. I don't know if we think about that enough, but from eternity past, God has been thinking about you. If you just paused and dwelt on that idea for a while, you begin to... uh, just sort of be amazed. God from eternity has been thinking about you. Before you were conscious of Him, before you had the ability to even understand language or concepts, right? God has been thinking about you. And that's the reason why He sent His Son. And the effect of Him sending His Son to die on the cross is uh, across the Word of God spelled out for us as propitiation. Uh, John says in 1 John chapter 4, he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be what? The propitiation for our sins. In other words, that means that God was 
angry with us because of our sins, because God is a righteous judge, He must punish our sins, and the motivation which flows out of God's love for sending the Son is so that God's wrath would be appeased by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the cross. You've offended God, and God has provided a remedy to appease His anger at you. And what motivated that was His love. Anybody here this morning who's offended God? We just read the Ten Commandments not long ago. I'll bet you some of us missed more than one of those. That's what the cross is about. Propitiation. It's about reconciliation. Paul says in Colossians 1, You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he's reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And by the way, as we think through what the cross is, just remember, we're going to come back to the method of how you preach this. That's why I'm spelling this out for us. I'm trying to lay out for us what is the cross and say what is the right way to preach this message. What other way could you do it? It's a message about God's love. It's a message about propitiation. It's a message about reconciliation. It's a message about forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Only one way to be forgiven of your sins. Just one. Trusting in Christ's shed blood. That's it. You can't be a good person and get forgiveness. You can't live a moral life and get forgiveness. You can't just show up to church and get forgiveness. You can't be uh, involved politically or socially for good and get forgiveness. There's only one way to get forgiveness, and that's in Christ and trusting in His shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. That's it. The cross is about crucifying our old sinful nature so that Christ may live in us. It's about making us alive. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, again he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us. You see, the cross is about a lot of things. And what the Apostle Paul, by just referencing shorthand here, the message, he's including all of that in it. That's what he was doing for two years as he preached in Corinth, explaining what the cross was about. It was about God's love. It was about propitiation. It was about reconciliation. It was about forgiveness. It was about crucifying our old sinful nature. It was about making us alive together with God in Christ. It's about all kinds of things. And Paul catechized this, uh, and he taught the church these truths. This is the substance of his message. About the Son of God becoming incarnate to die for our sins. And that's what he preached. He says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How did He do it then? How did He get this message across? First of all, He preached. He preached. The word there is katangalo, which means to announce. He preached. There's a lot of discussion in the church today. Whether preaching's maybe just not enough. Maybe preaching is just not enough to get people who are used to cell phones and text messaging and twittering. Maybe it's just not enough. Maybe God lacked foresight when He commanded the church to preach the gospel. Maybe He didn't really communicate. Uh, the fullness of all the ways in which uh, this message could be communicated because the audience at that time was only into public speaking as a means of communication. But you see, there's a lot of people today who are arguing, and I'm not talking about people out there, I'm talking about people inside the church who think that maybe the best way to communicate the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is is to, to put the chairs in a big circle here, to light some candles and to burn some incense and just sort of sit around and have an unstructured discussion about Jesus. I'm telling you, these people mean to be taken seriously. That's the way we are to communicate because that's the way people are today. 
We're also different, you see. Especially people under 25. That's not me. I'm always reminded of that when I go to school. (laughs) I'm the oldest person in class. And they all think I'm old. But they're just so different, you see. Can we just preach? Paul said, this is what I did. And he's not just reminding them what he did. He says, this method is how it's done. It's not just one option among many. This is how it's done. This is how Jesus and his death for our salvation is to be communicated. Preaching. And he tells us how he did that in verse 3. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. There's all kinds of speculation what this means. Some think that maybe Paul had an illness while he was there in Corinth. Some think that Paul had a propensity psychologically to be uh, fearful and anxious. Uh, Some people argue that what he means here is that Uh, He had physical deformities and he looked odd and strange. He knew that people wouldn't really listen to him. So he was in fear and trembling. I think the best way to answer this is to realize what the context is about. Paul is refuting the methods of the sophists. And one of the key methods of the sophists was to present a self-confident exterior to the audience so that they would value the message according to the confidence and the demeanor of the speaker. You see that? They evaluated truth based upon whether the guy up front looked young and charismatic and intellectual and self-confident. And if he seemed to be somebody who had all the right looks and sounds... And he could identify really well with me in terms of how I thought, then the message was to be valued. And Paul said, self-consciously I have not bought into the methods of the Psalms. I preached the gospel in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And if anybody has ever stood up behind the pulpit and meant to proclaim the word of God as Paul says here, they know exactly what he means. I could not sleep at night for years before I would get up on a Sunday morning and preach the gospel. I can remember being so exhausted on Sunday mornings with circles under my eyes because I was afraid to go preach the gospel. I remember for years I would be so sick in the mornings that not only could not eat, but I wanted to throw up almost every morning before I got up in the pulpit to preach the word. I understand exactly what he means here because the preaching of the word is not the communication of some man's idea about how things ought to be. It's the inspired word of God. I don't know if you ever think about that, but what you carry around in your Bible is God's word to you, inspired. And to have the terrible opportunity to take up inspired words upon your lips and communicate them with gravity and sincerity and trying to aim to be accurate in order to change people's hearts and minds, it's a terrifying experience. Paul is just being honest what it is to be a preacher. not about your antics or your methods or the shtick you have going on when you preach. If you're just trying to preach the Word and you think about what the Word is and about what you're trying to do with the Word, you'll do it with weakness and fear and trembling. The other thing he says here which was different in his means of preaching the Word or methods in preaching the Word is he said he proclaimed it in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You see, I've already told you that the sophists relied upon their intellectual capacities, their exterior of self-confidence. They were the ones for shaping your view of reality. And Paul says, that was not me. I preached in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. In other words, what he was saying is, I relied upon God to use His Word 
to accomplish His purpose. You see, Paul values the truth so much that he did everything he could to get himself out of the way of the message so they wouldn't be cluttered up. So that God would take that truth with His Spirit and apply it to the heart. We wind down our message this morning. We have to think about some application. Before we do that, I just remind us why this passage is here. This passage is here because Paul is saying that the divisions in Corinth are due to people thinking and acting in a way that is consistent with the word of wisdom approach. All the divisions that are going on here, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, indicate that they have bought into this segmented and fragmented view of reality, that there really is no objective truth out there. There's simply truth for me and the particular uh, group that I belong to. And whenever you buy into that system of thinking, you always end up with division. Paul sets on this side the contrast, which is the preaching of the word, of the cross, and the methods. So when we think about it through that lens, we begin to understand the application of the passage to us this morning. And the first application of the passage to us this morning is that the message and the method go together. The message of Christ crucified and the method of delivering that truth, it goes together. By the way, you can already see that from the alternative. The word of wisdom people preached in a way that was consistent with their view. Remember what their view is, that we're all here by chance. That we're all living by chance. And that we're all going to die by chance. That there's no objective truth anywhere. That there is... No way to access truth. And therefore the only way to get somebody to believe something is that I have to manipulate them, intimidate them, make them fearful or anxious or amused so that they will buy into my view. That's just the way they taught. It was a method that was thoroughly consistent with a message. But Paul didn't preach that way again. His method was consistent with his message, and his message was that there's a God. You know, if you just begin from that starting point, that there is a God, that is going to change absolutely everything. Because if there's a God, the reason why we're here is because He put us here. Because He made us like we are. And if there is a God and He has made this world, and this world is full of violence and people sinning against each other and hurting each other, then that means there's sin in the world. And if there's sin in this world, that God must be a God who hates sin and punishes sin. Which gets us into the message of the cross. And because that's what Paul believed, that there was objective truth, that there is a real God, there is a real world outside of us, and that there is a real problem, that God's angry at us because we've made a mess of His good world, then we better realize that there is a method that's consistent with preaching that message. And the method that is consistent with preaching that message is the one outlined here. It's unfolding the Word of God and explaining it so that people understand it. And then allowing or relying upon the Spirit of God to change people's minds. It's direct. I spend quite a bit of time, well I don't say quite a bit of time, but I, I do spend some time surfing the internet to find out how other people are preaching. In part because I want to learn I want to improve. In part because I don't know what's going on in the church because I'm kind of occupied on Sundays. So I can't visit other places. 
So I try to consume internet preaching, and a lot of it now is in video format, so I don't just have to listen, I can see what's going on. And I've got to say that what I see is disturbing. That sermons are constantly paused or stopped in the middle of the sermon for the pastor to invite somebody up to have a dialogue with them to illustrate the truth. Sermons are are constantly paused or stopped for uh, a pastor to play a video clip from The Simpsons or a movie they just saw to illustrate something they just preached on in the sermon. Sermons are constantly paused and stopped for a drama team to come out and act out something that was just said or will be said. Sermons are constantly being used as a platform for the pastor to have open mic night like it's uh, open mic night down at the comedy club. I mean, I marvel at what's going on in the church. It's as if we bought into all the methods that the Apostle Paul has just said don't work and are contrary to the message. I don't say that to be mean-spirited to people out there. I say it because we need to inoculate ourselves against that kind of thinking here. It does bother me that many people who sit in Reformed churches, in conservative churches, in confessional churches, are highly critical of the fact that the church is not progressively moving along with the rest of evangelicalism to have their mentality uh, saturate the worship of our churches. To say, we're not being on the cutting edge of how people are doing it, and those churches are growing, and we're not, so there's something wrong with us. We've got to change. Maybe we should spice it up a little bit. Maybe we should stop preaching doctrine. Maybe we should stop preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified and become practical now. I can't tell you how many churches I've seen recently in the news media who are preaching month-long or two-month-long sermon series on sex. Why? Because they did a little bit of market research and they found out that people are talking about it and maybe uh, that will make the world think that we're kind of cool. You know, if it's in the Bible, we'll talk about it. But if it's not in my text, I'm not going to go out of my way to have a two-month-long series on sex. Just because I think the unbelievers around me might say, Wow, that church is really on the cutting edge. They see through this stuff better than we do. Our job is not to figure out what the world around us might think is cool or neat or might be a means of persuasion for them to come to our church. Our job is to do what the Apostle Paul says as he reminds the Corinthians here. When I came to you, I did not come with superior speech or wisdom. I came proclaiming the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's our job. That's our job. You say, well, why are you so worked up about it, Pastor Sotel? After all, nobody's asking you to show clips of the Simpsons here. Because here's the difference. Here's the reason. Look at verse 5. We're closing with this, by the way. Why did you care, Paul? Why does it matter so much? Why have you gone out of your way to point out what you did, how you preached, and why it should matter? Because verse 5. So that. It's an argument, by the way. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see what Paul is saying? He didn't spell it out for you. He assumes that you'll get it. When people try to use all the methods I've just described, Paul says that generates faith, but not a faith that rests on the power of God. A faith that rests in the power of man. See, here's the problem with buying into all these tactics and techniques and emotional appeals and methods and video clips and dramas and open uh, comedy nights at the church. Here's the reason. Because people won't be able to distinguish whether their faith is in the preacher or whether it's in Jesus. That's the point. They won't know whether their faith has been attracted to a method or to a message. You know, it gets so cluttered up that they just have no clue. But Paul says, 
Let me give you some encouragement this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you're in a church where the Word of God is explained and preached and the Word is reasoned from and Jesus is proclaimed, then He says you can have assurance. You can have assurance this morning that your faith is not resting upon a man or upon a preacher. But what? The power of God. That's why the method matters. Will anybody really believe? Will anybody really be saved? You could have a church full of 10,000 people on a Sunday morning, but are they there because of the method and the man, or are they because of Christ? Paul says you can have all of your methods. I have a message. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message I proclaim. You know, the world may walk in here, and I've had this told to me recently, and say it's weird. They say that. There's no props. There's no entertainment. There's no praise teams. There's no high-definition TVs panning out, giving us uh, camera angles of the audience as they worship. It looks weird. Because it doesn't look like anything else they've ever seen. And you know what my response is? I say, you're right. It does look weird. But you know what? God said to do it this way. And there's one thing that's important to me, and only one thing, at the end of the day, for myself and for all who are here, is that by doing things God's way, you get to walk away assured that your faith doesn't rest on me or a method, but on the power of God. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters.